You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The 1980s witnessed something that had such a lasting impact on the cinematic landscape and pop culture that it still resonates today. Fueled by testosterone, greased up muscles and thundering gun violence, audiences couldn't get enough of this high-octane action that would create a successful niche market for the next 20 years. Our aim is to explore what caused the monumental success of the 1980s action films, what drove the continued success through the 90s, and how the political and parental atmosphere caused its eventual decline at the start of the 21st century. Through interviews with cast members, directors, writers, producers, composers and fans who influenced this movement of stunt-fueled cinema, this documentary will detail how the action movie has changed from the gritty revenge films of the 1970s and evolved into the one-man army with unlimited ammo as they rained down revenge on their enemies. Examining the narrative tools of the buddy cops, the everyman taking on terrorists, the special forces assault teams and the dawn of the female action star. In search of the last action heroes will be the definitive behind the scenes look at the favourite films from our youth. Survive a war. You gotta become war. We want to rekindle those fond memories all of us have of being a kid and watching these violent adult movies for the first time when we knew we weren't supposed to. We will be covering the political context that heavily inspired the genre and backlash from the media and parents outraged at how these films were influencing everything from cartoons and toys to video games. We want to take you on the ultimate journey back to the heart of 80s action films. Folks, welcome to a special episode of the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Today, I'm talking with Ty Singh. Ty is a man of many talents. He is the founder of the Bristol Bad Movie Club, which is over in Bristol, England. Don't you know? He is also the author of Born to Be Bad: Talking to the Greatest Villains in Action Cinema, which is available now via Bear Manor Media. And he is the producer of In Search of the Last Action Heroes, which is going to be directed by Oliver Harper. And that is currently underway. It is out there as an Indiegogo campaign. So you can still go out and support it now, I believe, because it's one of those things that just keeps going on. Or you can keep track of updates over at Indiegogo. I will have links in the show notes at projection-booth.com. It was absolutely fantastic talking to Ty, and I really hope that we can have him back on the show sometime soon. When I got him on the horn, the first thing I said to him was, I want to ask you a bunch of questions, and I want to have them answered immediately. Tell me about the Bristol Bad Film Club. How did that come about? The Bristol Bad Film Club was something I started five years ago. 
mainly as a bit of a laugh and to alleviate my boredom from my day job. I was round at some friends and we were having a drunken double bill of the room and samurai cop. And we had such a good time that it got me thinking that there was nowhere in my home city of Bristol that regularly did events like this. So I started putting on monthly screenings of films like Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, Samurai Cop, Birdemic Shock and Terror. And it just kept growing and growing. And our screenings sell out every month. We've had Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero come to Bristol for our events. And we do them all over the city at the Planetarium, at, at City Farms, where we've done screenings of films like Night of the Leapers, which is giant rabbits on the rampage. So, yeah, it's uh, it's something we do every month. And all money from the uh, screenings go to a different charity. So, you know, it's bad films doing good. What are the qualifications in order to be part of the Bad Film Club? This is very important. So basically, we want films that set out to be proper films, that they were the they were someone's vision. They put their heart and soul into it, but for some reason, it didn't pan out. So films like The Room, films like Samurai Cop, films like Dangerous Men, Raw, which was Tippi Hedren and her husband Noel Marshall's passion project uh, about lions and tigers, and it's just them being chased by lions and tigers for 90 minutes. It's, it's these films that you just can't believe they got made because they are the result of general, of, of most often one person's vision. There's no studio involvement. There's no producers giving notes. So we wouldn't show films like Transformers 5 and we wouldn't show films like Sharknado because those films either are deliberately bad or they're just not entertaining enough. They've got to be that sweet, sweet 90 minute spot of you can't believe what's going on on in front of your eyes. Like Ninja 3, The Domination by Cannon Films would be a prime example. Those are bad, as in not good films. Those are, are, are sometimes perhaps maybe a little bit difficult to watch. And then you also use the term bad, as in evil, born to be bad. And I'm curious, what brought about the decision that you're going to write this book? This came from a screening of RoboCop that we had at a local cinema in Bristol. They did a 35mm screening of RoboCop. I'm a massive fan of the film and I was just sat there with friends and we were, we were loving it. And it just got me thinking about the actors they cast as uh, the bad guys in the film. People like Kurtwood Smith, who I think had been uh, Neil's dad in dead poet society. And I don't think he'd really been cast in that kind of role before. And you had Paul McCrane who had uh, hit the big time by appearing in fame. And you had Ronnie Cox who was, done films like Deliverance, and I think he'd done Beverly Hills Cop at that time. So he'd done kind of straight as an arrow, you know, police lieutenants or people in the army. And it kind of got me thinking, how did these actors get cast as bad guys? And whether that was a boon to their career, or did they get typecast as a result? So I was cycling home, and it got me thinking that maybe I could expand this idea to all the the bad guys that I grew up watching as a kid. And so within 48 hours, I'd written a, a book proposal, sent it off to a bunch of publishers, and I started chasing down all the actors that I, I wanted to interview for it. Just from the cover art, a lot of these actors and these characters are from 1980s film. Is that kind of your sweet spot? I was born in 1983, so I am kind of a child of the 80s and 90s. But those were the big films that I grew up watching, films like Die Hard, uh, Arnie's films, James Bond films, the Superman films. In the book, there are a few actors uh, from the 1970s. So I spoke to uh, Andrew Robinson, 
who plays uh, Scorpio in Dirty Harry. So he was great to talk to. And also, I'm, I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan, so because he played Garrick in Deep Space Nine, I could scratch my Trekkie itch with that one. But primarily, the actors are from 80s and 90s action films. So kind of it's it's more the peak of action cinema. I wanted to speak to actors who had kind of gone on to greater things or or maybe the films they had been in had kind of got them pigeonholed in those type of roles. Who were some of the people that you tried to get that you weren't able to get? So I had a very big list. There, there were several actors that I really wanted to get. Um, so the, the ones that I really wanted to try and get but couldn't, uh, Clancy Brown, uh, who played the Kurgan in Highlander and he's been in Starship Troopers and Shawshank Redemption and numerous films. But at the time I was writing my book, I think he had spent the previous year doing uh, like an anniversary uh, tour talking about Highlander. And I don't think he was really up for talking about it again to me, which is understandable. I couldn't get Kurt Wood Smith simply because the man is always working. And Michael Ironside doesn't really uh, do many interviews these days. And again, like Kurtwood, is is always working. So those were kind of like some of the names that I really wanted to try and get. But, you know, due to their busy schedules, I wasn't able to. And who were some of the interviews that you had to struggle for that you finally managed to snag? The last interview I did for the book was Martin Cove, who plays uh, Crease in the um, Karate Kid films and and Cobra Kai. And I'd been trying to get hold of him for months. And it, it was literally at the point where it was kind of like, look, I've got to submit my book next week to the publishers. I really have to interview you. And I think it was the week before Christmas that, you know, it, I think he, he was doing a lot of work as well. And uh, he had just had a grandchild born so obviously he was very busy but he was kind enough to 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 spare me an hour and I, I managed to interview him for that and we talked about cobra kai but he couldn't tell me at that point whether he was in it or not and so i was kind of overjoyed uh when i saw him crop up in the season finale which i may have just spoiled for people who might not have seen it <laughs> well what were the qualifications for you who were you looking specifically for like these are the people that fit into the best baddies of the of of filmic history yeah so basically what i was thinking about was the actors that i grew up watching in these iconic films that many of us grew up on so like die hard so uh unfortunately alan rickman and alexander gudinoff who plays carl they have passed on but uh there were loads of actors in there that would be were able to tell me about working with them so dennis hayden who plays eddie on the front desk he was also in uh, films like Action Jackson and Al Leon, who plays Uli, the henchman who steals the candy bar. And he's been in like so many action films over the years. He's in like uh, Big Trouble in Little China. He's in Lethal Weapon. He's in Showdown in Little Tokyo. So actors like that had loads of stories about working on big films uh, as well as Die Hard. And then it was just actors that stood out in my mind as unforgettable bad guys like Vernon Wells, who played Bennett in Commando and Wes in The Road Warrior and uh, Mr. Ego in Inner Space. So it was kind of just tracking down these actors who, when I just sat down, I was like, who are the bad guys that stand out in my mind from growing up on these kind of films? And I just sat there and just wrote a list and then did my best to kind of track them down. So this is a, a literal rogues gallery of people. And I'm curious, can you just, to, to whet the appetite of the listeners, tell us some of the folks that you talk to? Sure. So, I mean, 
it's it's an incredible range of actors because not all of them were actors. Uh, the great thing about eighties action films is the bigger the star, you had to kind of get physically imposing people to match them. So uh, if you've got Arnie in a film, you're going to need some big bad guys to go up against him. So I spoke to uh, Gus Rethrich, who plays um, Buzzsaw in The Running Man, and he was a power lifter. So he didn't really kind of get he, – he wasn't an actor. He just kind of fell into these roles because studios were looking for big, massive guys to kind of be an imposing threat to uh, actors like Arnie. And Sven Ole Thorsen was another uh, Danish powerlifter, and he's one of Arnie's closest friends. And I think he holds the record for being the actor that has been killed on screen the most by Arnie. So he's he's the Russian general that Arnie kicks in the door and goes, knock, knock, in Predator, and then blows him out of a window. He's uh, Thorgrim in uh, Conan the Barbarian. He's um, the security guard in The Running Man. He's been in loads of films, and he has so many stories. He has been in everything. He's he's in a Hard Target with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. He was on uh, on Deadly Ground with Steven Seagal. And the, the, because these people aren't professional actors, and they don't have the PR uh, pu- publicists that most of these stars do, they are very willing just to kind of go yeah, here's what happened on these films and here's the actors that I loved working with and here's the actors that I didn't and here's how I forced my way into an episode of Baywatch just by driving down onto the beach and physically intimidating David Hasselhoff. It's 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 amazing. So you had everyone from, you know, bodybuilders to uh, ballet dancers to, you know, Shakespearean English actors who are in like Paul Freeman in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Julian Glover, who who was in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, For Your Eyes Only, The Empire Strikes Back, Game of Thrones. And it's a, it's a whole mixture of things. So everyone from the stage and screen that uh, that you can think of, hopefully. So how does this then, you know, you're looking at the bad guys in this one, and then how does this translate into your film project where you're looking at the heroes, you're looking at the other side of the coin? Uh, The thing about the 80s action genre is it's incredibly unique. So what we're looking at doing with the documentary is charting where this kind of period of, you know, bigger than life action heroes came from. So in the 70s, you kind of had action heroes that were kind of more morally great, like Popeye, Popeye Doyle in The French Connection. And then what we want to do is we want to interview the, the filmmakers and the actors and chart where this kind of rise of the uh, clearly defined hero and villain came from. Was it kind of what America needed after the end of the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal? Uh, was it just kind of where, where did these really muscular, uh, macho heroes come from? And then how did they evolve into more leaner actors like um, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Keanu Reeves by the early 90s with films like Double Impact and Speed? So what we really want to look at is uh everything kind of from the the rise of these action heroes and also their female counterparts because obviously the 80s was the rise of uh ellen ripley sarah connor and then even on vhs um action stars like cynthia rothrock and it was also a time when you could get like the 100 million 
$5.18 certificate action film, which no one makes anymore. It's amazing that they were able to do that with a project like uh, Total Recall. So we kind of want to find out how that bubble grew and how it eventually burst with um, you know, the political climate changing in the early 90s and uh, more parental outrage about the level of violence in films. So hopefully it's going to chart the rise and the eventual fall and nowadays that kind of nostalgia that you kind of get for these films and why Hollywood is kind of make, bringing us new Predator films, new Terminator films, and you get franchises like The Expendables. It's interesting when I think about it, like 1970s, I, I love 1970s cinema, but when I think about it, what Hollywood is turning out, mainstream Hollywood, let's say, I'm not yeah. thinking of a lot of action films. I'm thinking more of thrillers, dramas, romance, uh, you know, heady pieces. And then I think about things like what they were doing in Hong Kong with all of the, you know, the Chopsaki films or, uh, with, uh, black exploitation films. And that seemed to be where action really lived. And then it almost got taken over, got, got, uh, disenfranchised by, mainstream Hollywood and uh, you know also some outsiders like Canon and these kind of companies as we move into the 1980s. And I'm curious what your thoughts are as far as why that might have happened. I think that's a really good point because I think Spielberg created the modern blockbuster with the release of Jaws and then Star Wars just compounded on that. But up until that point, the 70s films were kind of a mixture of martial arts and and um, and more thought-provoking thrillers and dramas. And then somewhere along the lines in the 80s, you get these bigger-than-life, quite violent action films that uh, are a genre unto their own. And in terms of the Asian influence, you kind of get that in canon films like the Enter the Ninja films, but it's not something that really kind of uh, is embraced in the mainstream until maybe the late 80s when John Woo's The Killer and hard-boiled kind of becomes more of a thing. And then you kind of see uh, Hollywood kind of embrace that in the early 90s. Like, you kind of see that in Double Impact with Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, using two guns as well as his martial arts skills. And uh, films are transplanted, transplanted to Hong Kong. And then you kind of have John Woo coming over and doing films like uh, Broken Arrow. Um, so I think that Asian influence eventually came to Hollywood, but it dripped through because I think Hollywood's always been very slow about uh, embracing things from the East. I mean, Bruce Lee blew up in 1973, but I don't think that Hollywood really ever embraced the whole martial arts culture properly or in the mainstream until the early 90s, which I, I find quite shocking. And it seemed to be a lot safer to have white guys doing it, Jean-Claude Van Damme doing these moves rather than an Asian guy doing these moves. Absolutely. I mean, Jackie Chan really didn't break through in Hollywood until 1998. Was that Rush Hour when Russia came out? I mean, you had kind of uh, Rumble in the Bronx and you had First Strike come out, but they were limited releases and they were just mainly for people like me who were Jackie Chan fans who had grown up with films like Police Story and Project A. And I've always found that Hollywood does seem to have like a a kind of a, a one-in, one-out policy when it comes to Asian leading men. Jackie Chan comes in, does his thing, but he's kind of only limited to like the Rush Hour franchises. Uh, Chow Yun-Fat came in, does films like The Replacement Killers and Bulletproof Monk, but he never breaks it into the big time. At the moment, Donnie Yen is having his, his time in the sun, but 
you never seem to kind of get more than one actor headlining these kind of Hollywood uh, films because I still think it's an ongoing problem in Hollywood, this whole issue of diversity. It, it is a real, real issue. It's like Hollywood are unwilling to kind of roll the dice on a non-white lead. But luckily we have films like Black Panther that shows them that, you know, audiences want to see something different. But in the 80s and 90s, of course, you know, uh, the, the main stars are Sly and Stallone and Bruce Willis and Jean-Claude Van Damme and even someone like Carl Weathers, who we all love from Predator and uh, the Rocky films, his own franchise, uh, Action Jackson, never really took off, which is a shame because that's a great film. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about Sylvester Stallone, who becomes this huge action star in the 1980s. And it really isn't until, I would say, I mean, you could probably make a case that Rocky III might have set some of that. But First Blood, that's an action film, but it's also kind of cerebral as you're going along. But it's not until, for me, Rambo, First Blood Part Two in 85, where he is just balls out action star. And then you think about him, not even 10 years earlier in Rocky, where that is such a heartfelt film. And that one fits into the 70s films so well. And it's, he becomes that action star and just becomes like one of those, those figures that you carve onto the Mount Rushmore of action star heroes. I think that's something we're really going to look at in this documentary. It's when these actors are kind of, they're young, raw and hungry. They're willing to take those risks with films like Rocky and Rambo. Like he took a massive risk with Rocky. He wrote that and he held out to be able to star as Rocky because they, they didn't want Stallone. He wasn't a name. And then Rambo, he plays John Rambo as that damaged PTSD ridden vet that he is. But then I think after that, because Stallone becomes such a big star, people want to see him as the hero rather than as kind of someone who's unsure of himself or traumatized. And then it's just kind of, the rise of Stallone, the action star, you know, with films like, uh, you know, Rambo part two, and then they get even bigger. I think by the time Rambo three came round, it was one of the most expensive films of all time. And then, you know, you get films like Tango and Cash, Cliffhanger. It's, it's all about Stallone, the action hero superstar, than Stallone, the actor, which we don't arguably don't really get to see until Copland when his, action star bubble has has waned somewhat yeah the name of the documentary is last action heroes which of course calls to last action hero which was it that was a milestone when it came to uh arnold schwarzenegger's career like we were really at a crossroads with where he was and then his self-parody and schwarzenegger i mean he to me embodies what 1980 action movies are all about Absolutely. I think when you think of 80s action films, it's it's always going to be Arnie at the forefront of your mind. And Last Action Hero, I think they tried to do something quite unique. I think Zach Penn's original screenplay was, you know, a loving homage to the 80s action genre. And then I think the, the budget spiraled and I, it got uh, rewritten by Shane Black Um and, and by all accounts, John McTiernan had a very uh, bad time making that film. And I think it might have just been a case of too many cooks kind of diluting what that film could have been. And then, of course, it had the unfortunate 
uh, issue of going up against a small film called Jurassic Park, uh, which buried it somewhat. So I, th- I think the action genre is kind of ripe to kind of be re-examined because that film does touch upon lots of the things that we love about that that time. It's action heroes who can can mow down an entire army of bad guys without even getting a flesh wound, you know, who can punch through plain glass windows without shattering every bone in their hand. But at the same time during the 80s, that evolved somewhat with Die Hard. You had the more vulnerable action hero. You had John McClane who, you know, walks out of Nakatomi Plaza with his feet bleeding, covered in both his and other people's blood. It's not like Arnie at the end of Commando who's just standing there kind of going... I left you only bodies. It's it, it's it's much more of an evolution of that action hero archetype. It's interesting to think about Jurassic Park as being the kind of something that unseated the action hero because there's no action stars in that. I mean, Sam Neill, he he, he breaks out into a run, but he, he's obviously he's not fist fighting uh, <laughs> any sort of dinosaurs. You know, the one person that we have with a gun ends up getting you know, gnawed on by a raptor. So in, you know, Dr. Ian Malcolm, God love him, but he is, he is not an action star, though he, he God, he's, he's so cut in that movie. It's weird to think that that special effect is really what managed to unseat some of our action heroes that we have. I think that's something that's kind of, with the Jurassic Park film, you know, you're going for the dinosaurs. If like it was Sylvester Stallone as, you know, Dr. Alan Grant, that that's not why you're going to go see this film and therefore you don't have to pay Stallone 15 million to appear in this film because people aren't going for him. You can get someone like uh, Sam Neill. And that's what I think is more interesting about uh, how the action genre evolved. You c- there was a shift for actors who weren't what you thought as action stars, like before Speed or Point Break. I don't think many people thought of Keanu Reeves as an action star. He's just that guy from films like Parenthood and Bill and Ted. And then he kind of proves himself. And now he is John Wick. You can't think of Keanu Reeves as anything but the action star that he is. And, you know, it was the same with Matt Damon. Could you have seen Matt Damon as a super spy before the Bourne identity? He's just, you know, Private Ryan, who Tom Hanks has to go save. And the guy from Goodwill Hunting and... You know, uh, films like um, Courage Under Fire. He he's not an action star until he becomes one. Same with Daniel Craig in the Bond films. So I I, th- I think it's a definite shift between uh, the the bigger than life action stars and then kind of that move to really good actors who we can make action stars. So much of action cinema, at least in my opinion from the 1980s is it's plays upon the political climate of what was happening. You know, especially when we look at, you know, the Rambo films and by that I'm saying Rambo first blood part two, right? So much of these things, you know, especially like, I mean, Reagan was quoting the Rambo films. He was quoting Clint Eastwood and you know, it's, it's the 1980s cinema is such a strange combination of, uh, you know, cocaine, steroids, and republicanism, you know, it, and I'm curious, you know, you, uh, being British, what was the state of British cinema? Were you guys trying the, the, your hand at action films as well? Or did you just leave that up to the Americans since they were kind of owning this franchise? 
Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> we, we've always had our one action hero in the form of James Bond, but James Bond has always been incredibly reactive to, uh, to, to what's big in mainstream action films. So if you take the Roger Moore Bond film, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, that is clearly a reaction to the uh, growth and popularity of Bruce Lee films. He's there in Thailand. There's a couple of martial arts scenes. Live and Let Die is clearly a reaction to black exploitation cinema. And in the late 80s, you have uh, License to Kill, where Bond is going after uh, drug cartels in the form of Robert Darby. And that is clearly something we hadn't seen uh, James Bond do before. That's something we've seen Stallone and Mel Gibson and Arnie do before. But it's clearly a reaction to kind of the popular films of that time and and you're right it is a reaction to american politics you've got the uh the contra scandal going on you've got the uh soviet invasion of afghanistan which is reflected in films like rambo 3 and the living daylights it's clearly kind of a bit of a knee-jerk reaction i feel to america's defeat in vietnam that you kind of get these films that are almost making up for that, like Rambo's going back to Vietnam and uh, essentially winning the war single-handedly for America. And then on the other side of that, you kind of get films like Aliens, which is kind of the Vietnam War in space, where uh, a very well-armed group of American soldiers or colonial Marines are getting picked off one by one by enemies in the shadows that they can't see. Uh, it, it's it's an action genre that is definitely influenced by the politics of the immediate past and of the present. And I think that's what's so fascinating about it. Well, tell me about your partner on The Last Action Heroes. Tell me about Oliver Harper. So Oliver Harper is a young, young, he's actually older than I am. He's a, he's a very influential YouTuber who's got, um, who over the past several years has been doing retrospectives of all these 80s action films that he loves. And like me, he kind of grew up on them, on films like Richard Donner's Lethal Weapon films and Superman films. And he's grown this very passionate, very loyal following who have been kind enough to support uh, In Search of the Last Action Heroes, which is his first feature-length project. So Oliver is going to be editing, directing, and writing. And I'm uh, here as a producer capacity, helping to get some of the names that we're after, helping him write the script. And then hopefully this is going to take Oliver to the next level in terms of where he wants to go. So he already has this inbuilt audience following. And, you know, we, we kind of talked about where he wanted to, to take it. Is he going to just stay on YouTube forever doing this? Or shall we try and take it to the next level and, and do something feature length? And that's what we're doing. So I know that things might change, but I am curious who are some of the people that you're going to be talking to for the documentary. We've got several names that have expressed interest in appearing, including uh, Lethal Weapon director Richard Donner, which is great. Um, we've also got legendary uh, Uber producer Mario Kazar, who produced like the Terminator films and Stargate and um, Total Recall. So he was there at the forefront of these massive big budget um blockbusters and then we've also got people like james bruner who wrote uh, a lot of chuck norris's films like missing missing in action and delta force uh sheldon latish who uh did kickboxer and Bloodsport, and worked very closely with jean-claude van damme and directed him in double impact we've got peter mcdonald who 
is best known as the second unit director on so many action films, but he uh, directed Rambo 3. Uh, we've got Stephen E. D'Souza, who actually was kind enough to write the foreword to my book, and he wrote, you know, small little films you might have heard of, like Die Hard, uh, The Running Man, and Commando. And so it's not just the actors that we're going for. It's kind of the people that made these films and worked in Hollywood at this time and can kind of see the evolution of it. But in terms of actors, we've got Bill Duke, from Predator and um, Commander. We've got Michael Bean from the Terminator films. Uh, we've got Janet Goldstein from Lethal Weapon 2, and who was Vasquez and Aliens. And then we've got a few actors that I did interview for my book that have come on board, like Vernon Wells and Ronnie Cox. So every day I'm reaching out to more and more people, but we have a, a great number of people that have agree to participate at the moment it's just a case of you know when we get out to la making sure that we can kind of bend our filming around their very very busy schedules and there are so many different ways that you can go with a documentary like this you know just even thinking of like you could get so specific to something like let's talk about cars and let's talk about how cars played a role in these films oh absolutely you you could spend a whole hour just talking about the cars in the Mad Max films, the Wraith. I mean, just cars were such stars of these things. And just, you know, motor vehicle mayhem, thinking of some of the chases that we have in like the Lethal Weapon films. I mean, you can go so many different ways. I'm so curious to see where you guys actually take this thing. We're very conscious of that because, I mean, that there are, like you said, there are so many elements that we kind of want to touch upon. I'm curious to kind of touch upon kind of the growth of the female action hero in these films. Uh, I'm, I want to talk about the stunt work. I want to talk about, you know, spiraling budgets. I kind of want to talk about films that were crafted around these, you know, superstar egos and, and everything. It's going to be fascinating to kind of, do it but i think once we have all our interviews in the can then we kind of know what the story's going to be but like you said if you can make an entire film just about the growth of martial arts in action cinema over the past three decades you can you can just chart it simply about one of these actors uh it's going to be it's going to be fascinating but they say filmmaking is you know two parts filming it and then creating it in post so it's going to it's going to be fascinating yeah, especially documentaries. I mean, so much of that work is done in the editing suite. You're going to uncover a lot of interesting things along the way, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I learned that from writing my book, the stories that kind of came out of these actors that uh, I, I wouldn't have believed. I mean, one of them, for example, so I interviewed Ronnie Cox, who uh, who played Cohagen in Total Recall and Dick Jones in Robocop. And we were talking about... When he was making Total Recall, at the same time, he was making Studios' version of Captain America. And as someone who's run the Bristol Bad Film Club, I have done a screening of Captain Films' Captain America. And I was like, so tell me how you were doing this at the same time as you were doing a $100 million production in New Mexico. And Ronnie told me, without any hint of like sarcasm or anything, that when he got the script for Captain America, it was the best script he had ever read. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I was like, you serious? And he was like, deadly serious. So that's why he was flying between Yugoslavia, where they were filming Captain America, where he was the wholesome president of the United States, and then flying over to New Mexico to play Cohagen as like this evil CEO who wants to uh, charge people to breathe on Mars. It was fascinating. I love that guy. He is such a pleasure to talk to. He 
was a delight and he was able to he was willing to answer all my stupid questions from the time he was in Star Trek The Next Generation as Captain Jellicoe to me asking why the hell he was in Deep Blue Sea at the beginning and he didn't say anything. He's just sat there next to Samuel L. Jackson. He has no lines. And I was like, how did you end up in Deep Blue Sea and not have any lines? And the story behind that was fascinating, but you're kind of going to have to buy the book to find out. There you go. Good plug. Good plug. I like that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have any sort of idea as far as where you're going to bookend the film as far as, you know, we're going to start in, I don't know, 1976 and we're going to end in 1997? Or do you have any idea or are you going to kind of figure that out as, as you go along? I think that is going to be something that kind of goes along. But I think what it is going to do is I think we're going to start at the end of the 70s. And then we're going to look at the growth of Stallone and Schwarzenegger's careers and how action films evolved around them. So you kind of have low budget uh, indie hits like The Terminator and First Blood. And then by the time their sequels come around, these actors are the biggest names in show business. So I, I think you can't tell the story of how these actors became the biggest names in action cinema until you look at how they started out and how the industry changed along with their careers. And then I think the documentary would probably end today because these actors are having essentially a, a renaissance period. Stallone absolutely crushed it in Creed, and I can't wait for Creed 2. Arnie is making another Terminator film right now. There is talk of a fourth Expendables films. Um, and I think films like uh, Ready Player One have, have kind of shown that there is a nostalgia for this genre in the 80s that, that hasn't gone away. And, and why is that? Why are we looking back at films like Predator with, with such nostalgia? Is it because that Hollywood was making these violent 18 certificate films that they just don't do anymore because they want to get more people in and more money on that opening weekend? You've talked about the bad guys and these movies – kind of live and die by the bad guys a lot of times. I mean, yeah, it's great to see, you know, uh, Rocky out there, but he's only as good as Drago. You know, he's only as good as Apollo Creed, only as good as Clubber Lang. So these days, I mean, it's only been the last maybe three Marvel films that I've seen where they've actually had decent villains. And that's been a problem for the last, I would say, decade of these movies is that the villains just aren't the match to the heroes that they really need to be. I think Marvel have had a villain problem, but I think what kicked off the Marvel Cinematic Universe and has kind of kept it going is just the pure charisma of Robert Downey Jr. He was the reason we all kind of went to see Iron Man. My brother's always kind of pointed out comic books uh, and their, their movie adaptations inherent problem with the villain that it's often the same as the hero just bigger so in the case of iron man you know iron monger it's just a more rudimentary iron man who's bigger and you know it's something that was in the comics and i think movies do suffer as a result but it's when they change those villains to make them more interesting like they did with eric killmonger in black panther that that's when you kind of get something more than just a kind of rudimentary bad guy. But I think Marvel's uh, success 
has just come from really strong casting. I mean, Chris Hemsworth is great as Thor. I love how they've kind of really harnessed that man's comic timing. He is so much funnier than he has any right to be, considering he's that handsome. Uh, Chris Evans, if you like follow him on Twitter, he seems as righteous and pure as Steve Rogers himself. I'm just waiting for him to kind of pick up a shield and smack Donald Trump in the face one day. And, and, and likewise, people like Paul Rudd and, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. It's, we kind of often go for these films for the superstars. Um, and I think that's why a lot of us keep coming back. It's strange that, that the villains that I talk to for my book, they are so memorable for so many different reasons. And yet the villains of today, I can't really think of anyone who has that impact like Alan Rickman did in Die Hard or Stephen Burkhoff did in uh, Beverly Hills Cop or Paul Freeman even did in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It, I can only assume it's when you're spending more money on that star, put them on screen as much as possible. But then they were doing that in kind of the 80s. Well, somebody was recently talking to me about Christoph Waltz showing up in one of the Bond films. And I said, really? He was in one of the Bond movies? I mean, that's how forgettable some of these Bond films have been lately. I mean, other than Casino Royale, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really hard pressed to tell you too much about who some of these villains are. And they just seem like they're kind of recycling the same ideas over and over again. Uh, I, I agree. And I'm a lifelong James Bond fan. I, I love James Bond. I have all of the films except for Die Another Day, which can literally die. The Bond films have been, I feel, eclipsed by the Mission Impossible franchise. That kind of used to be James Bond films. You used to kind of go for insane stunts, you know, watching someone, you know, drive a car over a jump and it doing a 360 spin in midair and landing on the other side. But now the action in... Uh, the James Bond films, you kind of get, you know, they're augmented by CG. You know that it's Daniel Craig's face digitally put on that motorcycle stunt drivers. And that's fine. You know, we don't expect Daniel Craig to do all his own stunts. But then when you've got Tom Cruise doing all his own stunts and the action in those films is just kind of so raw and kinetic and fun, you're kind of like, this is kind of what the Bond films used to be. What happened? And, and you're right. I think they're also, there was a misstep in Spectre where they're trying to connect all the Bond films or all of Daniel Craig's Bond films, which you don't need to do. These have always been standalone adventures. You don't have to make Christoph Waltz's Blofeld Bond's, you know, stepbrother and you don't have to connect Spectre to all the other Daniel Craig films. It was not everything has to copy the Marvel mold. The Expendable films, they have their faults, obviously, but they are an amazing idea of taking all of these different action heroes and putting them together, and especially the idea of spanning the different generations, you know, to have Terry Crews and Jason Statham in there, as well as having Schwarzenegger and Willis and, uh, and Stallone in there. I mean, it's a great way to... I mean, I, I don't think that the last one necessarily did what it set out to do to kind of create a new crop of action heroes, because, again, very, very forgettable actors playing these. There wasn't that charisma, but the, the screen is just dripping with charisma when you get a Cruz, a Lee, a Statham, a Stallone all in one place. Like you said, the Expendable films have their faults, like... 
the first one was very average. The second one almost became a parody of itself with Chuck Norris kind of showing up on screen and quoting Chuck Norris facts. Uh, the third one, for all its, you know, going for a PG-13 rating, I thought was probably the strongest of the films in its own way. But like you said, the younger generation of, of Expendables were incredibly forgettable. But I do like how they blend the old with the new. I just kind of wish they hadn't killed Scott Adkins off so quickly in the second one. He could have been like the new generation of Expendables because for my money, Scott Adkins is one of the best action stars working today. And, you know, he, his, his films are fantastic if you're into, you know, pure kinetic martial arts action. Um, but at the same time, you know, instead of putting Kelsey Grammer and Harrison Ford in these films, you know, throw a Michael Dudikoff in there. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's strange some of the choices they make. I mean, I like Terry Crews. He's great. I'm pretty sure he stated he's not going to be in the next one because of, uh, let's just say some legal conflicts with one of the producers, but yeah, it would be interesting to see where they take it next. I do like the mixture of kind of the old guard and the new, I just wish kind of that, that old guard and the new was kind of more the action stars that we know and love and not so much people that, you know, that they're trying to make us appreciate, like, don't get me wrong. Liam Hemsworth is a very fine actor. He's done some great stuff. We didn't need him in The Expendables 2 because he's not an action star to the generation of people that are going to go see these films. And I don't think there was any young Liam Hemsworth film that would have gone seeing The Expendables 2 because of him. But if you put in someone like Scott Adkins or Michael Jai White or, you know, any of these young and up and coming um, martial arts stars or action stars, then that brings in that audience and introduces action fans to this next generation of action stars rather than uh, just just the young, new, hot face of Hollywood. I like how Michael Jai White is an up-and-coming guy when he was, like, in Spawn, what, 20 years ago, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I say this simply because I don't think Michael Jai White gets enough love. I mean, he's great in the Undisputed films. He's a great martial artist, and not just that, Films like Black Dynamite show he has got comic timing beyond what you would think. And I can't wait to see his next film. The Out- I think it's The Outlaw Johnny Black. That looks great. Um, yeah, he, he is no by me up and coming. I'm just trying to get more people to appreciate Michael Jai White. I totally agree. And yeah, I wish that The Expendables had embraced the female action stars you know you touch a little bit about some of the female action stars and unfortunately there just weren't enough of them in the 1980s and there still aren't enough of them right now well i mean i've interviewed cynthia rothrock before and i asked her why you know she hasn't been in any of the uh expendable films and she said you know she just hasn't been asked a few years ago she made like uh it was a straight to video um female's expendable version called mercenaries and she was in it um bridget nielsen was in it zoe bell was in it you're absolutely right i mean even for my book i try to interview um actresses like bridget nielsen and grace jones um but i i I couldn't get anywhere with it and so there is only one uh female actress that i interviewed for born to be bad and that was um sarah douglas who played uh, Ursa in Superman 2 and was also in Conan the Destroyer. But 
you're you're right there's it, i guess it's partly down to there were no big female villains that were obviously going toe to toe with the likes of arnie and stallone but it, it would have been great to just see uh someone like a gina davis or a sigourney weaver or a linda hamilton or a cynthia rothrock you know crop up in the expendables you know maybe as kind of like their their cia contact or someone who sends them out on their missions you know they don't necessarily have to get down and dirty in the action scenes it would have just kind of i think i would have appreciated more that recognition get jeanette goldstein she played vasquez in aliens throw her in there although uh she fast interestingly she runs her like her own um chain of bra shops in uh in Los Angeles catering to uh, making bespoke lingerie for women. So maybe she just doesn't want to <laughs> pick up a, a machine gun these days. Yeah. And Zoe Bell, she has been in some interesting films that have just kind of gone under the radar. Yeah. She was um, Irma Thurman's stunt double in the Kill Bill films. And she was in uh, Death Proof. Um, she was also in The Hateful Eight. Basically, uh, she's got a great working relationship with Quentin Tarantino. But I think she has this steady acting career but unfortunately you know none of these films have, have broken her big and so i think it would have been great for her to kind of crop up in one of these expendable films you know instead of someone like ronda rousey who i, I don't think needs introducing to anyone most people know who she is from her uh, ufc um career yeah and even today thinking about it i mean you know we've talked a lot about the marvel films and it's just like we've got Scarlett Johansson and then we've got on the DC side we've got uh, Gail Godot and it's just like okay not a lot of you know choice there and then also it was such a big deal that Wonder Woman got her own film it was like oh we don't believe that she can actually carry a film on her own well this is what they've been saying for years about you know uh, black actors that you know Denzel Washington can open a film in the US but his films don't you know do well abroad or something and that's why people were nervous about a Black Panther film and then it goes and makes a billion worldwide it's uh, you know you're hoping the success of Black Panther will kind of quell these studio fears but uh, I like to think of it like Enter the Dragon like Bruce Lee all the studios thought that an Asian actor you know leading a film it would never do that well and enter the dragon became one of the biggest films of all time but then it's like studios forgot that and never really cast a, an asian star in the lead of a major hollywood film going forward uh, it happens in dribs and drabs today and you're hoping that you know their memory is not as short and that they'll capitalize on the success of black panther and and put you know actors like michael b jordan and chadwick boseman and so many other talented young actors and take basically more of a chance with them as for scarlett johansson and gal gadot i mean there are there are actresses like amy johnson who's a stunt woman and i think has doubled for scarlett johansson loads of times they've got a decent career on in films like uh lady Bloodsport. Uh, so she has an up-and-coming dtv action career but it would be great to see her in the mainstream, she was recently in the Scott Adkins film Accident Man, and she was fantastic in that. So, you know, hopefully uh, the more and more people that give up and coming stars like this a break, the, the more we'll see, you know, action stars breaking into the forefront and, and have this next generation 
I suppose, too, the market was so different in the 80s going into the 90s than it is today. You know, you mentioned direct-to-video, and that's a that's an old term. That's an archaic term these days, right? I mean, it's like kids these days don't have the, you know, the hot singles shelf when they go into the video store where they get to see, like, the Jeff Speakman films, those kind of things. And instead, it's you know, luck of the draw almost, or just word of mouth. Like if something actually makes it into the mainstream consciousness, otherwise it's box office or nothing. You know, it, it's very tough to actually break through in that market because there's so much noise these days. Absolutely. I mean, in the eighties and nineties with VHS and DVD, you could go and you could find these films in your video rental shop and this kind of led to the careers of people like Cynthia Rothrock and Dolph Lundgren and, you know, Richard Norton and, and everything, because, you know, people would discover these films on VHS these days, because there's so much, there's so much on Netflix and everything. You have to be aware of an action star uh, and, you know, follow them. I mean, you can find films on Netflix and Netflix has, you know, some really great choices like jailbreak which is cambodia's first action film and and you know it's got a few scott adkins stuff on but you can't discover films as easily as you could just simply because of the the amount that's out there and it's a good thing and a bad thing because there's so much choice you are constantly discovering new things and i remember growing up you know being able to find an uncut version of way of the dragon or or you know uh, a copy of police story and it's original language was really hard you really had to look for it or kind of find a video or order it from hong kong these days everything you can stream everything everything has kind of got a blu-ray special edition release it's just knowing where to look for it and you know basically putting your money where your passion is but i guess with the you know rise in piracy and streaming smaller action films and scott adkins has been very vocal about this you know, unless you pay for his films like the Boyka films and Accident Man, then you're not going to get a sequel or a follow up to these films because they don't make any money. So, I mean, if you're an action fan, you should really buy these films or seek them out or watch them through legitimate platforms because that's how studios can see that there is an interest for these films and give them more money going forward. Well, tell me what are the next steps for you in the documentary and for the book? Are you going to be touring the book while you're out there shooting all these interviews? I'm in the middle of scheduling um, when we're going to be doing the interviews and chasing up some big names. Now that we've kind of got names like Richard Donner, Mario Kazar, and uh, David Worth and Stephen E. D'Souza attached, I can now go after some bigger fish, shall we say, now that we've kind of got got some support. So it's going to be, that's what I'm going to be doing over the next month. Uh, trying to get some of the bigger names attached to the project. Um, as for my book, it's, yeah, I'm going to try and take it around the country with me when I can. I'm, the Bristol Bad Film Club is doing a small mini tour in September of the film Samurai Cop. We're going to be taking it to several cities in the UK, including Coventry, Oxford, Bath, and Malvern. And so no doubt I will be shipping a whole bunch of copies of my books to those cities as well to, to, to sell them. But at the moment, it's uh, available on, on Amazon, both as a hardback, paperback, and Kindle version, or from the publisher, which is uh, Bear Manor Media. And where's the best place to keep up with you? 
So for the latest information on uh, In Search of the Last Action Heroes, we're on all social media uh, as Last Action Doc. Uh, and I am on Twitter at Timon Singh, T-I-M-O-N-S-I-N-G-H. Or you can follow Born to be Bad on Facebook at Born to be Bad Book. Uh, that's the best place to kind of find out the latest news and information about that. Well, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. I could have talked to you for a whole other hour or just about action films, but I definitely want to let you actually get back to all your work. Mike, it's been great to talk to you too, and keep up the great work. Have you ever seen Point Break? No. What about Lethal Weapon? No. You seen Die Hard, though? No. What about Dirty Harry? No. Bad Boys 2? No. You ain't seen Bad Boys 2? You ain't seen Bad Boys 2? Not exactly. Gunfights, car chases, proper action and shit. Amazing bit in Point Break where they jump over a fence. Is that not? <laughs> yeah. Gunfights, car chases, proper action and shit. Point Break or Bad Boys 2? Which one do you think I prefer? No, I mean, which one do you want to watch first? You are pulling my leg. Stopped. Oh. You ever fired two guns whilst jumping through the air? No. You ever fired one gun whilst jumping through the air? No. You ever been in high speed pursuit? Yes, I have. You ever fired a gun whilst in high speed pursuit? No. Got real, real, real. Did you shoot him? Shot someone. He killed someone. No way. That is amazing. It's not amazing. It's extremely regrettable. The situation left with no choice. What's it like being stabbed? It was the single most painful experience of my life. What was the second most painful? If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.